When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode of Marvel Standom is presented by eBay. We're all looking forward to Marvel Studios Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, the epic conclusion of James Gunn's trilogy about everyone's favorite spacefaring misfits. But as part of that conclusion, we're going to see how Rocket got his start. Every hero has an origin story, so fans can pay tribute to one of our favorite Guardians with this brand new and totally adorable eBay-exclusive Funko Pop Flocked Baby Rocket from Marvel Studios' Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. Remember, eBay is the only place to score the Guardians of the Galaxy Flocked Baby Rocket Raccoon Funko Pop, which is an exclusive eBay drop. Head on over to eBay on Tuesday, April 11th to get yours. Avengers, Age of Ultron is garbage, folks. Is it an alligator or a crocodile? I don't know the difference, and at this point, I'm too afraid to ask. Look at that. That is a werewolf. What is up, everyone? Welcome back to Denny Geek Presents Marvel Standom. I'm Mike Chikini, the editor-in-chief of DennyGeek.com. And with me this week, we've got Denny Geek News and Features Editor Kirsten Howard, brilliant pop culture writer and Denny Geek contributor Joe George. And welcome back, podcast god emperor. I did not write this, but this is how he insisted he be identified <laughs> if he was going to come on the show. It was in the contract, folks. Mr. Al Kennedy. Al, how are you doing? I'm great. I can't believe you haven't taken all the brown M&Ms out of the bowl, though. Like, does my writer mean nothing? <laughs> <laughs> no, it means absolutely nothing. But, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm trying to be accommodating here. Um, yeah. We do have uh, an interestingly packed show this week. Uh, we've had a pretty busy week in Marvel news, right? We had the release of the Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 soundtrack list. Uh, we got the first real Secret Invasion trailer. We got another unbelievable look at Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse Part 1. And on top of that, and the thing that I think we're the most looking forward to here, we've got the first installment of the Marvel Standom Book Club. Woo! So uh, <laughs> should we start with Guardians? What do you think, folks? Yeah, if you like. I, I am a massive fan of James Gunn's Guardians of the Galaxy movies. I'm a big fan of those soundtracks, even though each of them has at least one like real clunker. Like there is never any excuse for Escape, the Pina Colada song, like ever, <laughs> you know. Uh, but I like that song. All right, <laughs> but you don't like these movies. <laughs> I don't not like them. Yeah, I'm curious where where everybody falls on the on the Guardians of the Galaxy divide, and and you know what you think of the interestingly uh, multi generational Zoom Zoom inspired soundtrack of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Three. 
Yeah, I mean, I think my my family are uh, not quite old enough to be into the Marvel movies yet, but the one thing that both my daughters five and eight have seen is the Guardians holiday special, which means that now they just walk around singing that old 97 song about how Santa is a furry freak <laughs> with epic superpowers and all that kind of thing. Um, so I'm, I'm pro the Guardians generally because I think they are, uh, they're entertaining for uh, all kinds of different audiences. They're not just a, a superhero movies audience. They're not just the, the people who are going to go along and see, you know, Black Adam or um, Quantumania or any of the other kind of big things from recently. They are a, a broader kind of um, feel to them, really. It's more of a kind of adventure story than a superhero story. Um, but the the soundtrack to this, the third one, it, it seems to be a bit of a different approach to the soundtracks to the first two, which were much more tied to very specific time. Yeah, and it's interesting looking at the the track list here, you know, <laughs> apropos of another movie that none of us are that excited about, you know, No Sleep Till Brooklyn's on here, which was used in Mario uh, recently. And that's an example of, you know, I look at that, I look at, do you realize the flaming lips and like in the hands of most filmmakers, these are going to be really obvious needle drops, but uh, the way that Gunn works all these songs into his movies, I it, it's hopefully going to be a lot more exciting and a lot more interesting. Um, you know, I had a revelation while watching Peacemaker the, uh, to switch over to DC for a minute, you know, that all of the songs of Peacemaker are like 80s butt rock songs, which I hated when they were new. <laughs> and yet, you know, I'm I, I listening, watching the sequence at the you know, House of Pain and like, this is amazing. And then I'm driving around in my car, listening to them and like, oh, wait, no, I actually do hate these songs. I just <laughs> like the way that James Gunn uses them. And so part of like looking at this is like anybody else, I would hate some of these songs, but I'm excited to see how he's going to deploy them. This is a pretty good lineup. Uh, one thing that I did notice was that This Is The Day by The The is on there. Or I do you guys call it the the I don't know. I've always said the the anyway. I've always uh, said the the yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the the. Uh, yeah. and that song to me is Empire Records. Yes. Will always be Empire Records. And I can't imagine Guardians of the Galaxy 3 changing that. Um, but it's quite the mood, that song. Um, not that you know, Creep by Radiohead isn't <laughs> a mood, but uh, a lot of these songs are very much moods rather than uh, party time you're at the pub in the 70s and uh, the jukebox is playing these these are moods so I'm interested to see I'm interested to see how this turns out uh, this seems like this is it's, it's just gonna make me cry all the way through that's the vibe <laughs> I get that I'm just gonna cry and I, I've gone from thinking that Rocket is gonna die in this one to everyone but Rocket is gonna die in this one good <laughs> <laughs> yeah is that the more preferable option I think so. No, not Nebula. Come on. Okay. Or Gamora, actually. Sure. Gamora's already died. So, like, I think Gamora is safe. Yeah. Um, The only thing that I'm disappointed about is that we will never get a Roxy music song on a Guardians of the Galaxy soundtrack now. And, like, for years I've been saying, like, how has there not been a Roxy music song on one of these mixes? Uh, It just seemed, like, too perfect. But that rainbow song 
You know, it's funny. Kirsty and I were talking about this when that trailer hit using <laughs> since you've been gone. Yeah, you called it a deep cut. And I was like, no, you can't. Like, <laughs> that's drive time. Like, that's big crazy. number. <laughs> yeah. And not in America. Like, in America, first of all, you got to understand American classic rock radio, as far as American classic rock radio is concerned, there are seven bands. <laughs> Two of them are the goddamn Almond Brothers and Leonard Skinner. And of those seven bands, they all only have three songs. Like, so the, like Rainbow in general is a deep cut yeah. here in the States, you know, but post Dio Rainbow, like, get out of here. Yeah, so, like, I, I think there's a generation in the UK for whom the there was an album that came out called the best rock album in the world ever in like yes. 1992. <laughs> and it basically converted an entire generation of um, weird teenagers into American classic rock fans. That was what made me a fan of Rainbow, Kiss, all kinds of uh, that kind of thing. But yeah, no, I, I know what you mean in terms of like, you expect only hear a very, very small number of songs and most of them are, are little ditties about Jack and Diane. But um, <laughs> to get something like Since You've Been Gone, I was just like, is this a trap specifically set for me? Is there free bird seeds in the middle of this road and a piano suspended by a, an ever tautening rope just above it, waiting for me to come in and it's playing Since You've Been Gone by Rainbow. Yeah, turned out it was fine. <laughs> That was me with Moon Age Daydream in the first one. But well, I'm glad to see in the meantime back by Space Hog. Their their Hell hit yes. their hit record. There was there was a month oh, yes. where seventeen year old me was convinced that was the best song in the world. So yeah. And he yes. was right. <laughs> yes. And there's like, you know what? There's like three other solid bangers on that record too. Like Space Hog was done dirty by history, folks. I feel there's there's an alternate universe out there where they <laughs> they had a very different career track, you know. So, <laughs> oh, I remember none of them, and I listened to that record a lot back then. <laughs> oh neither. yeah, dude, you gotta you gotta check out "Cruel to Be Kind" on there. Like that's uh, that one's top notch. Wow. Okay. Lee is betting money now that in the meantime isn't actually in the movie. Um, because didn't that happen with Spirit in the Sky in the first yeah. one, right? Spirit in the Sky is on the mm-hmm. is on the mix and it's not in the movie. We got replacements. Mm-hmm. We got Bruce Springsteen. I'm here for it. Hearing these tunes at movie theater volume is going to be great. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, oh yeah. Also, Fox on the Run didn't make it into uh, into right. Guardians too. Like, and these are all Mike Bait tunes. Uh, <laughs> Lee, Lee is. By the way, folks, once again, let's welcome back Lee Parham, uh, moderating the comments for us and our, our social media coordinator at Denny Geek. Uh, Lee was out for a couple months. We missed him. And Lee is now back and on fire and uh, fact checking me uh, <laughs> on the fly as we go, as as he should be. So what's next, folks? I think it's time to talk a little secret invasion. What do you think? Yes. It looks so good. Can we just throw that out there? Like it's it. And not only does it look interesting i mean when i say that it looks good it looks good the use of shadows and actually feels cinematic and it's not all flat and cg goop like it's just exciting to see something that just has (laughs) that's adapting a visual medium that is visually exciting to look at so i'm just excited for that yeah i think one of the difficulties with quantum mania in particular is that the the mix is so 
off in terms of the the color levels yes. that Quantumania basically looked like I mean, apart from anything else there were so few actual physical sets the whole thing looked like it was you know if you get all the different colors of play-doh and you mix them all together yes. and like yes. it eventually just becomes this kind of it's brown but with other colors sort of in there somewhere in its genetics that was kind of what Quantumania was like but this looks great like it genuinely looks terrific my concern is that people like us are going to absolutely friggin love it and like people maybe other uh, there's the other half of people that are going to go this is really slow and boring what what's going on here like I, f- I feel like this is gonna be a slow burn in a lot of ways and I'm, i mean i'm pulling that out of my ass i don't know whether it <laughs> but yeah, and I think there's going to be some people that just like with Andor, you know, when that came along and everything had been quite upbeat and colourful for a while, I'd just been, oh, this is really boring and slow. And <laughs> I don't they actually, If they actually do manage to do like an espionage thriller, a paranoid espionage thriller in the MCU, though, I'll be so impressed. Yeah. Because yeah. Th- there, there absolutely is the scope for that, particularly when you're dealing with a bunch of uh, actors who would be very up for, you know, Ben Mendelsohn can do whatever he wants, mm-hmm. like get to chew the scenery up. Um, the difficulty that they have is that obviously you're coming at it from a source material, Secret Invasion, the actual series was, you know, heavily trailed before it came out as being that kind of thing, all the kind of embrace change house ads that they ran in the comics and so on. Mm-hmm. And then when it came out, it wasn't that at all. It was like <laughs> one issue of people being kind of suspicious of each other and then seven issues of a fight in a park. Oh. <laughs> Nobody has said, what, he loves you? Was that the the catchphrase that they would use? Yeah. Nobody said yeah. that in any of the trailers yet. So I'm I'm hopeful that there's none of that at all in this this only has the name and scrolls and we can just leave that monstrosity behind us yeah it's like when they take a bad comic with like like age of ultron and they turn it into a great sorry i'm being handed a note (laughs) forget that no no you were so right oh i thought i was gonna have an ally here oh a brilliant movie a thoughtful character drama in a barn Thor goes to a jacuzzi for okay, a while. Okay, there was that, too. sure, but come on. I mean, bad comic into good movie. I mean, Civil War is right there, Al. Uh, that is true. That is definitely true. Civil War almost made me stop reading comics. It came out like I've been reading comics for 20 years or whatever, and I literally I was this close to stopping reading comics because Civil War was so awful. My buddy calls books like that wall bangers. Because, like, you f- want to fling them across the room, and they hit, like, <laughs> like, Civil War is a wall banger. Secret Invasion, wall also banger. Also a wall banger. <laughs> yeah. We gotta be careful though, because I think last time that I was bad mouthing Secret Invasion, we got some clapback from uh, some viewers that were like, "It's, you know, perfect masterpiece," and. Oh, well, I, I'm not going to be here next episode, so I'll take those brickbats. It's rubbish. It's rubbish. Yeah, it's... Um, I I marked out so hard for this trailer that I was watching it alone. Like, I woke up and, and I clocked into work and it was like the first thing I did was watch that trailer like while I was having my coffee. And I literally said out loud, 
to nobody. I said, Oh, hello there. Like a total <laughs> dork. Like just like a total because this is this calls back to, you know, look, the Winter Soldier remains is like forever going in and out of my, you know, top three Marvel movies. Like it is just it it's it's just something I just constantly revisit. It to me is like the perfect Captain America movie. It is so much of what I want out of Marvel in general. And at the time, we all know Kevin Feige was like, it's a political thriller. And it's like, it is in no way a political thriller. Like, but it was nodding towards more traditional action and thriller genres than superhero stuff, than most of what the MCU has ever been willing to do. This looks like they're kind of going for it again. And if the show ends up with this tone, if this is like Marvel's Andor, uh, like I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm just going to lose my mind. And I have heard through the grapevine that th that it is really good. Like I've heard people describe this as like an HBO show. Hmm. I mean, Fraggle Rock was an HBO show as well. That's not forget, so. <laughs> Fraggle Rock holds up really well, dude. Right. Like, like it does. It does. <laughs> well, Brad Street's a great writer. Um, he did some great work on Mr. Robot, which I watched from beginning to end. I was still watching it long after a lot of people gave up. <laughs> so I think that says something. Anybody think this might be pulling more from like John Hickman's Secret Warriors than, you know, the actual Secret Invasion source material at all? Well, I think where it's pulling from is Robbie Thompson and Nico Henshon's Meet the Skrulls. And the only reason I think this is because... Um, I was watching the trailer subtitled and Amelia Clark's character is Gia and Gia is the mom of the sleeper cell scroll family in um, Robbie Thompson's Meet the Scrolls. And her husband is this character, Killer, um, not to be confused with Killert, the, <laughs> the super scroll. I think it's kind of a Mick Mac kind of scenario. Um, but so I think that they're maybe going in that kind of a direction where you've got this family of scrolls. They've been living on Earth for 20 years. They are planted as a sleeper cell. They're, they're not in touch with the kind of scroll battle plan, the scroll high command kind of thing. They're, they're kind of out there by themselves. So if they are still on a kind of a war footing, then you know, you could end up with uh, Ben Mendelssohn trying to tail us, trying to call these people back in, and the spies just not wanting to come in from the cold. I've never read that. Is this a it's future good. book club episode? It's a it's a really good series, and it's only like five issues. I think so. Then let's do it. I haven't read that either. We're gonna need some book club stuff for Secret Invasion. So I think uh, Al, you might have just nominated our next uh, <laughs> our next installment there. It'll be interesting to see here see how uh, civilians, to use your phrase, Mike, uh, respond to this since the scrolls have been so different in. Um, in the MCU, you know, that that was a nice twist for those of us that know the characters. But for somebody that doesn't know the, the, the race at all, they're very sympathetic and, you know, refugees and all that in Captain Marvel. So uh, it sounds like the, the stuff that I've read that, that have only been like Samuel Jackson and Ben Mendelsohn and Amelia Clark talking, you know, just the actors, not the the writers or producers, anything like that. It sounds like that's a lot of what they're trying to tap into this kind of build on the refugee idea that these are uh, uh, refugees that have been on earth for 20 some odd years and, 
and have been promised by Nick Fury that they would be given a planet at some point, and now they're sick of waiting. And so um, Amelia Clark's character is is Talos's daughter in, in in this version, and is her sort of punk rebellion is that she's going to go out there and you know, the earth is going to be the scroll planet. So I, I like that. I mean, to kind of go back to this being the MCU and or um, MCU sh uh, shows have kind of touched on real world politics, sort of, you know, I'm thinking uh, Falcon and the Winter Soldier that dealt with refugees and and nationalism for a few minutes and then quickly did not. Uh, so I, I, I'm, I'm skeptical that we're going to get something like we got in Andor where they sit down and describe space communism to each other. But uh, the, at least the, the roots are there. And I'm, I'm hoping we can get something off of that. And of course, on the complete opposite end of the tonal spectrum from Secret Invasion, we got the first full Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse trailer. I did not think I could get more excited for this movie. And then I got a shot of Ben Riley, like in the <laughs> proper, like blue hoodie costume, which is just like how it should be. So, um, where's everybody falling on this? Can they recapture the magic of the first one? I mean, it sure looks like it, but that first one is such a miracle. It should not work. That, I mean, we, we kind of touched on this before we started recording, but Spider Man's not really a multiverse character. And that's kind of weird to. To, to put him in that. And then, you know, when you're going into it, you're afraid that Miles is going to get buried under all of the spider characters. And yet somehow that first movie pulls it off where this is a Miles Morales story that still has multiple Spider-Men that is all crazy and, and, and bonkers, but still has real genuine heart and character development. And I see zero problems in this trailer, but it's just... How are they going to pull that off twice? And yet I, I see this scene that we've got pulled right up there, just the the little school conference scene. And I'm so excited to see that family again. Uh, and so I hope so. I really do. But I, I don't think people understand how badly the odds were stacked against that first movie and what an achievement they had to tell something that complex and moving and rich and palatable to all audiences. That's it's outstanding. I think you have to remember as well, before it came out, the advance word on it was, it's good, but it's not going to do numbers. Mm. You know, the, the tracking for it wasn't great at all. And then it was very much in doubt as to whether there was going to be a follow-up. When they announced that there was going to be a sequel, everybody was, I mean, there were, everyone was pleased, but kind of surprised in, in a good way. Mm. So it's amazing that not only are they doing one more, they're doing two more, and they're expanding the the scope of it so much it, it just looks sensational i mean gun to my head that first one is my favorite superhero movie of the last 10 years 15 years 20 years like it's it's not even particularly close i mean it's like look my, i have basic bro opinions to some degree like yes i think the christopher nolan batman movies are that great mm -hmm. yes i think logan is that great but the the first Spider-Verse movie is just like, you know, the, the, I think this is something that, that will be will be talked about in 20 years in ways that, you know, a lot of MCU entries just simply won't be, you mm -hmm. know, even like the good ones. I think that's absolutely right. Particularly when you get, you know, you, you have people talking about what are the best superhero movies of all times. 
and people go back to you know Christopher Reeve and and so on but genuinely I like I love I love the MCU I am not sure the MCU has ever produced anything as good as into, it's produced a lot of great stuff I'm not sure it's ever produced anything as good as Into the Spider-Verse and that's purely because I think Into the Spider-Verse is as close to perfect as a superhero movie can get it is astonishing start to finish and I absolutely love it oh yeah this this frame here with the three of them pointing at each other this is my only bit of reticence here it's like don't <laughs> don't do a joke about the meme oh no <laughs> it was tired when the Again. first film came out yeah that's the only thing that I've got against it. Yeah. But when you said about that Ben Riley, like not only is it a great, great to see that Scarlet Spider costume with the blue hoodie and everything, the fact that it is rendered as an almost perfect pastiche of the art style of Tom Lyle, the artist who yes. really made that costume. Just absolutely great stuff. I'm really looking forward to this film. Tom Lyle, super underrated artist of that era as well. Like, like Tom Lyle, I recently went back and like started looking at all the stuff that guy did. And it's like, oh my God, like we never appreciated Tom Lyle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, much missed now, of course. But yeah. The Clone Saga is, is I read the Clone Saga as it was coming out, <laughs> folks. Like, like I was deep in it. I was working in a comic book shop. You know, I'm older than dirt. And like even at the time, I was like, this is really bad, but I I wanted to see where it was going. But I at one point was all in on the idea that Ben Riley was the real deal. Like I was I was there for it. I'm like, great, this is cool. If they're gonna do this stupid thing, like we may as well go all in. But that scarlet spider design is probably what was carrying me across the finish line for that it was just it's so awesome um if i was in the kind of shape for it that's the one thing i would potentially cosplay as <laughs> well speaking of cosplay uh as a tubby middle-aged man i appreciate i've got the cosplay as uh, uh jake johnson's spider-man because that's the only one that fits my body type so i was glad to see jake johnson come back here i it, it sounds like, you know, we're kind of all pulling from the same era of Spider-Man comics. So as much as I appreciate Peter Parker as a teenager and a high schooler and all that, I still like my Spider-Man is married full-time job Spider-Man. And I, you see that so rarely explored. And Jake Johnson is so perfect as that older version of, of of Peter Parker that I want this to be Miles' story and I, I, I still want him to have the focus, but I was so glad to see him as a parent. I, that's, we, we so rarely see that version of, of Peter and that's it's such a perfect arc for him. They seem to be going in the direction of making Miguel O'Hara, Spidey 2099 into effectively the villain. I have a good, well, that ties into the confession I was about to make because I have never read a spider-man 2099 story mm. they're so good the original run with rick leonardi on art mm -hmm. absolute chef's kiss it is so good how's the new stuff the, the stuff that steve orlando has been writing because I, I am a steve orlando fan it's not the the recent event that you did the fifth week event they did was pretty good i enjoyed it it's good. the All thing right. with 2099 is that whenever marvel goes back to it they they, they have this tendency to say Oh, we're going to do 2099 again. But should we do any of the 2099 stuff that people remember? 
Yeah. Let's make up <laughs> some new stuff. No, no one wants your Daredevil 2099 or whatever. Just Miguel O'Hara dressed in the old costume. Pander to us old people. <laughs> Give us Ravager 2099. That's what we all want. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> It's nice to see uh, Oscar Isaac uh, clearly trying to make up for his Moon Knight performance with this as well. I don't know why he would need to do that, but it is nice to see him <laughs> or hear him. <laughs> I hope he does a British accent at some point. That would be nice. I, I was really tired, so and I was <laughs> doing a bunch of work, so I was popping it out. I managed to see the trailer, um, but I, I was uh, on Twitter and I saw that people were saying, oh, the reason that people are mad at miles in this movie is because he's got parents and none of them don't. And I was like, is, wait, is that true? Or is that a joke? It might be. I mean, well, and Miguel's mom spoilers for 30 year old issues of Spider-Man 2099, but Miguel's mom's still alive. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> that is, I mean, it is the least spoilery spoiler ever. <laughs> but yeah just in case well, anyone was invested on whether on top of it. <laughs> I guess in terms of the other spiders Gwen Stacy's parents famously dead um, <laughs> Miles is alive Peter's Peter's, Peter's uh, trying to untangle the, the history of Peter Parker's parents is <laughs> ludicrous like the they were spies and they were killed by the red skull and they got brought back as robots by the chameleon and okay. nobody ever cares about peter parker's parents i don't know why they keep going back to that that re-watching those amazing spider-man movies it's insane that they thought that would be the the hook is what what what's up with peter's parent it's nobody ever cares ever 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 cares about that uh, the one thing I was going to say is uh, I don't I, I've not read Miles comics in in a bit. So are, is his dad alive in the comics? Because in the video game, he's not. And I wonder if that has uh, more uh, more pull with people. I don't know. I, I worry for his dad in the movie, especially kind of the, some of the things they're saying about you can't save both sort of thing. And I love Brian Tyree Henry. And so I'm I'm worried. Yeah. Miles's parents. Um, alive or deadness is a kind of a movable feast. Like, okay, <laughs> it depends on whether you're in the the ultimate universe or our universe, and depends who's writing the comic. Gotcha. And he's not named Jefferson Davis anymore. We've we've all oh, recognized that that was a just horrible, oh horrible oh. idea. What are you guys talking oh. about? Oh, what is happening? So let me tell you about the United States. Um, <laughs> 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 it's super racist and uh, yeah okay <laughs> and the super racists in the south decided that they needed to be their own country and because they wanted slavery to stick around and the okay. man that they yes. elected for president for their super racist own country was named Jefferson Davis and so for a black character to be called Jeff Davis in you know any time after that it's a problem why would they do this? Bendis has given a reason. Is um, Bendis doing this? I, I'm pretty sure it oh, was yeah. him. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. Bendis's Miles comics 
are good. Like yeah. they are generally like, yeah. you know, it's, it's the good Bendis, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like there's the good Bendis and there's the bad Bendis. <laughs> like, like, like Bendis is miles comics. Like for the most part are like the good Bendis, except for, you know, things like this. <laughs> But anyway, in the movies, Brian Tyree Henry is amazing. And the first Spider-Man movie is such a good dad movie. Uh, so I'm really worried about that. I mean, the whole the the, the scene in the first movie where uh, his dad comes to visit him in the dorm room and he's he's been tied up and can't respond. And that's such a perfect blend of just a good plot moment. We know why Miles has been bound, but it's also such a great um, uh, character moment to kind of address that tension between the two of them and 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 it that that's the moment where miles comes together and realizes he's both his uncle and his father and it's so well done it's just the whole movie is crazy and bonkers as it is it stops and it slows down to just focus on a shadow under a door while the dad has this confession it's it's moments like that that really make that movie more than all the popcorn lights multiverse crazy stuff which is all excellent um it's that that sort of stuff and so I'm really worried for his dad from here on out, but Spidey's got to suffer. I know that's the way of a Spidey. I love that we all love these movies, love that first movie so much that we've done like 20 minutes on a two-minute trailer. Uh, <laughs> Amazing. I almost derailed us as well by talking about Batman Ninja, but that will have to wait. For uh, we can do a DC standem episode on Batman Ninja because you know I, I am also that. a fan. Mike, I would Batman love Ninja's it. good. Yeah, I think we're going to have to do that soon because I, I'm due for a Batman Ninja rewatch <laughs> and also Batman Soul of the Dragon. But anyway, we, we've already gone long. I apologize, folks. I'm I'm uh, I'm not doing a good job of keeping us on track today, <laughs> but it is time for what was supposed to be the actual focus of this episode <laughs> before we had such an amazing Marvel News Week this week. It is time to discuss... Supervillain team up, Modox 11, an absolutely bonkers 2007 limited series, which is a real hidden gem. Uh, I'm so glad that we read this. Kirsty, why don't you tell everybody what this is all about? Okay, well, this was published in 2007 to 2008. Uh, the story is pretty straightforward, I would say. Um, considering how much double crossing there is in it. Uh, Modoc <laughs> hires a rogues gallery of, let's just say, not exactly A-list villains, uh, including Armadillo, uh, Chameleon, Deadly Nightshade, The Living Laser, Mentallo, Puma or Puma if you're American, uh, Rocket Racer and The Spot from Across the Spider-Verse, as we just saw in the trailer. Um, he says... He'll pay them five million apiece to rob the Infinicide, and I hope I'm pronouncing that right, a gang of temporal cartographers who have an insanely powerful thing called a hypernova. Um, Moda wants to do something really terrible with it, but we're never quite sure until the last minute what that thing is. Um, everyone's on board, except there's 
a few layers going on. Chameleon is really the ultra adaptoid working for AIM. Uh, Rocket Racer secretly on Team Shield. Um, the Spot is ready to sell out to the Mandarin. Um, so it's amazing then that Modok ultimately wins in this one, uh, having thought enough chess moves ahead to achieve his evil goal, which is, and um, prepare yourself, uh, killing a woman he had a one night stand with because she rejected him. He really is that pathetic. <laughs> there are so many incels in Modox Eleven, like <laughs> including Modoc himself. Uh, but I love this, and I, I just want to point out before we started the show today, I had to be reminded. I'm like, whose idea was it to do the to do this book? And Al, like, very sheepishly, kind of raised his hand as if as if he was in trouble. And like, I'm like, no, I'm like, this is this is delightful. Why did you decide on this, Al? Was this just like like timely because of Quantum Mania, or you want a Fred Van Lente kick? Like, yeah, what's going well, I mean, on? A, a six of one and half dozen of the others. So, oh, there he is, old Big Ed himself. Yeah, lovely look at him. Um, yeah, I mean, I love Fred Van Lente's work. I think he did did so much great stuff for Marvel around this time. Um, the the peak of what he did, I think, was when he was working with Greg Park on uh, Incredible Hercules, which is so, so good and doesn't get talked about nearly enough nowadays. Um, but this as a mini is just so intricate. It's this beautiful little clockwork ball that just unwinds and unfurls this ridiculously complex um, plan of, of Modox which, you know, as Kirsty says, it plays out actually quite straightforwardly as the comic goes on. But he is playing proper kind of 12-dimensional chess with everybody. <laughs> and it's nice to have a moment, uh, well, to have a series at all, where Modoc is not, you know, the, the laughingstock character. The, the, the series actually begins with a, a recap of Modoc's origin that's kind of horrific. Like him getting led into this um, test chamber thing where he's going to be turned into Modoc and he's having second thoughts about it. And then they're like, nah, no, sorry, too late. And he gets turned into this um, big giant head uh, with little widdly diddly arms and legs. But pulling all these other villains in these kind of zed listers like characters like nightshade nightshade's a power man villain from the 1970s for example uh puma and spot are both kind of late 80s um spidey villains characters like the armadillo i mean the armadillo is ridiculous but he's somebody you can get a little bit of pathos out of because he doesn't want to be a supervillain. He just wants to get out of this stupid costume and out of this business. So when you have um, all these characters that are very minor league coming together, what you get is a very level playing field for them. So any of them could die. Any of them could be betrayed. Any of them could be the, the betrayer. And by the end of it, they're all basically one of those things <laughs> because there's so much back and forth backstabbing. It it reminds me of not even like heist movies. It reminds me of Clue. The <laughs> fact that there's so much frantic shifting of line of allegiances back and forth. 
um it's it's fantastic stuff really really loved it yeah i don't know if you guys have this too but um one of the things that really resonated with me with this story was that um as a kid you know i had a random comic book that had puma and rocket racer uh and, and prowler but you know teaming up on it i had a uh, I, I got the Cap Wolf comics when they were new and Deadly Nightshade's a big uh, part of that. And then and so there's that weird thing like when I, I, when you're old like us and you didn't grow up with every single comic book available to you on the Internet, you kind of had like this weird thing where you, you would just get that one comic that, you know, your mom bought you in a series that you're not reading. And you just kind of latch on to those characters that you never really see again and they kind of become your characters. And I had a lot of that when, when again, Puma and Rocket Racer and Deadly Nightshade show up in this. You know, I, I've maybe read three other comics with those characters in it. So it, it, it kind of had not only that, that any of these could die and you can go any direction with them. But also uh, it was so good to see my friends again, sort of feeling that uh, you only get with these lower level characters. And that made the whole thing kind of... <laughs> I'm getting all sappy, kind of special in a way. I mean, it's a it's a big goofy heist uh, 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 or, you know, whodunit sort of thing. But it was also I, I felt real nostalgia <laughs> seeing these guys again. Yeah. When you have these kind of memorable but not famous characters, yeah. they will always be somebody's favorite character because yeah. you Mark Greenwald used to say that every comic is somebody's first comic. Well, so I'm not sure that was ever completely true. It's not going to have been far off, particularly in the heyday of a lot of these characters' debuts. So when you you look at somebody like the Puma, for example, who had quite a memorable run of appearances in Spidey comics in the, the late 80s and early 90s, there is a group of people who have a huge fondness for that character. And you know, almost with any of the characters that are, are in this series, I mean, I'm not sure how many people are massively devoted to Mandarin Junior or whatever, <laughs> but you know, there are going to be people who come into comics who were reading at you know 2002, 2003, 2004 kind of time and, and thinking, well, Monica Rappuccini, I remember her from the Scorpion stories in Amazing Fantasy. Um, and, and things like that. You know, they're not marquee characters, mm -hmm. but they're characters that are memorable to the people who remember them. They're memorable to the people who remember them. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and they every, everything has its its fans. And yeah. so when you draw together from the pages of the official handbook of the Marvel Universe enough good little minor characters, you can put together a cool crew yeah. like they've done here. This is a really fun comic. I mean, you it's so easy to get through. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I think I read it all in maybe under an hour or something. It, it was uh, it, it's really breezy. And I have memory problems. So the way this is set out at the beginning with, um, you know how usually you just get like the wall of text of like, you know, what happened last issue or whatever in the tiny print. And you're sort of like, okay, I think I remember that. Yeah. But um, this has just a, a really cool way of starting the issues with like, Modoc is giving these guys five million to rob 
this shit from them and then this happened and you're just like oh okay yeah I remember what happened <laughs> because I forget so easily I'm like a fish going around the bowl you know so um yeah I love that and I really wish that a more comics took that approach rather than the sort of you know um previously on where you you, you sort of uh, have to get really involved because if, if I'm reading a series and it's been like a month or two months since the last issue I'm I, I, I would say I'm like more hesitant to go back which is why I tend to uh, read uh, read them all when something's finished or wrapped up like I'll read the whole thing um because I'm, I just, I find it really hard to remember what happened last time. And, and even uh, the little bit at the beginning doesn't help me. But this is just, it's just a good time, isn't it? Um, and and just that, that ending where it just, you know, he's so, he's gone through so much just to pull this plan together. And it's all just about getting back at a woman who rejected him once. And it's just, the, it's just so sad and and grim but also pretty funny there's there's a real venture brothers vibe to this um (laughs) you know where it's and of course like that's you know that's unavoidable because venture brothers is like so inspired by you know like advanced idea mechanics in particular and like like these weird corners of marvel comics but the idea that it is a story about these failures like just these pathetic Mm. failures like like just trying to live their weird lives (laughs) has like a real you know it's just thematically in tune with venture brothers and i gotta say fred van lente i can't really describe his writing or his tone but i think this and and his other work is a lot closer to what you try, like that indescribable, like it's not really quippy, it's light, it's funny, but it's not necessarily making fun of itself. It's intricate, it's weird, like it like it takes itself as seriously as any John Hickman comic for the most part, you know, the actual logic of the story and the beats of the story, even though there are all of these funny and pathetic and weird moments throughout Fred Van Lente should just be a much bigger, like should be a superstar writer. I have not read a ton of Fred Van Lente comics, but every single one of them that I've read, I've just like really enjoyed. And as Al said at the start of this segment, the one to devour, the one that I just recommend any Marvel fan at all, you must read The Incredible Hercules. Like, you just absolutely must. That series is a delight. And it's 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 just like this. It's weird and it's funny and it's but it also is cosmic and it's and and it's emotional. I don't understand. I don't understand how how this guy isn't jumping back and forth with bidding wars between Marvel and DC for his services the way there was with, you know, Bendis and all these other guys like uh, and this this story is a gem. Like would I give this to the most casual of readers? No. But you know, I I I want I want more now. Like I I want you know put this guy in a Superman book or something. You know, I just feel like his voice is right for so many things. 
And I think there's a reason why you couldn't give this series to the most casual readers, because actually there's nothing external to it. Right. All you need to know is that it's a group of loser supervillains and Modoc is clever. Because everything within these five issues, it's wild and it goes all over the place, but it's absolutely watertight in its plotting. It is a machine. And it is a kind of hermetically sealed unit that can be placed wherever, whenever. And there are so few big two comics that you can say that about. It's such a valuable thing. I think I, I totally agree with you. And and I, I love Fred Van Lente. I don't want to take away from this at all, but we also need to, the, the art is doing a lot of that heavy lifting along with this. I mean, the, the, pacing of this final pages of the where everything's being kind of unfolding and the reveal of of modok's chalkboard as it goes along there that's 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 something you can only do in comics you know because part of I, I i just because of the way that we our culture is right now part of this i'm reading it i'm like man it's a bummer that you know aim is so cool aim needs to be out there and why why was aim kind of wasted in in the mcu and all of that sort of stuff but you know, when you read something like this, it, it's it you can only do that type of pacing in in comics. And Francis Portella's character work here hits it, the not just I mean not just the pacing, but also the facial expressions, the way that he gets them out of armadillo. There's that one gag um, where he, you know he says something about uh, Modoc's butt, and it's a three panel bit where he says the thing and then there's a pause and then you know well if he had one uh sort of thing and armadillo's not the most expressive character and just that that tight line work that he does to to, to pull that expression out of there it's uh, it's perfectly detailed and and well excellent storytelling to kind of meet this this story and I hate these digital colors so much that I think it kind of buries how good the line and character work is here. The individual characters are so uh, well delineated in terms of their vibes. Mm -hmm. Basically, like whenever Mentalo comes on the page, you just think, wow, before he even says anything, you think this guy is a douche. <laughs> this, is an, <laughs> this is an entourage style character <laughs> in a, a supervillain team of comic book. And he's perfectly um, rendered by Francis Portella. Just beautiful stuff. If you want more uh, Francis Portella, he's done, he's worked for DC as well, right? He did uh, New 52 Legion of Superheroes, uh, Batman Gotham Knights, uh, and on Marvel, he did Black Panther, Wolverine First Class, and the Halo Bloodline miniseries, which I've heard really good things about, actually. So I might check it out. Never played a Halo game, but I'll get into it. <laughs> There's something about this series, too. It calls back. There was just this period in the, you know, 2000s, et cetera, where Marvel was doing such a good job exploring the lives of its villains, like especially its weirder corners. This feels kind of part of a set with the the brilliant 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 the hood miniseries um you know alias which introduced jessica jones which of course is not just the good bendis is like arguably <laughs> the best bendis right like 
there there was this period where they were just so good at peeking into the margins of the Marvel universe and telling stories like this. And I feel like there are more projects that I'm just like not thinking of off the top of my head. They did it again a little bit later with like superior foes of Mm Spider-Man, which is another delight. Um, And it's something that like, I don't know if you could really do this in DC as much as I love DC. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know that you could really like the Harley Quinn animated series, like kind of comes close, but like, this is such a very specific Marvel flavor um, on top of all the other things that there, there are to recommend it. Joe's doing his dis- disagreeing thing. <laughs> well, because when, I mean, okay. when you throw D- D&C list characters together and make them into an interesting team, that's that's the JLI model. I mean, that's... That, yeah, I guess. Yeah. I mean, if they're not villains, but they, they did the same thing. No, this is this has JLI f- fingerprints all over it. I mean, even the use of the facial expressions and the, the characters bouncing off each other, you could, you, you could throw Booster and Beetle into this and... They'd fit. Uh, no, no, no. Don't, don't. You host a DC standum podcast. Don't, don't diminish them. Now. And I love JLI, but I was, <laughs> I was really talking specifically about the villains. Like yeah, okay. that's, that's okay. my defense here, Joe. <laughs> like, Secret Society of Super Villains. It was, it was probably the first villain-centric comic, wasn't it? Was there anything before that that was? They had it. Even in JLI, you've got the you know, Clock King, Big Sur. There you go. Yeah. All, all that kind of gang justice league antarctica yeah <laughs> kirsty wanted to hit on um you know where this ranks along with other modok stories and i'll be honest like i, I don't know how many other modok stories i've read that like weren't you know drawn by jack kirby so like, <laughs> yeah he gets played for laughs a lot and it's understandable because he's a giant head with tiny with little arms and legs but there is a story in it was a series that was called Captain America and the Falcon and it was from about 2000 sort of mid 2000s and it was drawn by Bart Sears now Bart Sears well I'm not a huge Bart Sears fan right but this had a uh, I think it was written at that point by Christopher Priest I can't remember whether Bart Sears was still on art at that point, but or whether he moved on and somebody else was drunk. But there is a Modoc story in that in which Modoc is just utterly terrifying. And like the fact that you would have a giant head with tiny little arms and legs, if that appeared in your house, you would need to change your trousers because it, <laughs> you don't expect that. Doesn't happen very often. It's irregular. Look, I'm he, you, you t- you're telling me that there's a Chris Priest, Captain America, and the Falcon story with Modoc and Bart Sears art. Uh, I'm, I'm going to find this thing. Oh, I am in. <laughs> like, Mike, Mike's going to log off here and immediately read it. <laughs> yeah, like, like, it's like, when can I clock out today? <laughs> I'm going to find this comic. It seems like uh, Van Lente is perfect for this. Um, I was doing a little trivia hunt on him uh, before the show and he co-authored and staged a play based on the life of Jack Kirby called King Kirby oh. at one point, apparently. Um, so it feels like that you, you, Mike, you and Fred should know each other by now and be friends. <laughs> I have met Fred. 
Oh, you have. Uh, um, I don't know if you remember, like Fred uh, has been along when the Jack Kirby Museum, and I see that uh, Rand Hoppy from the Kirby Museum is uh, here in the comments with us today. Uh, when the Kirby Museum does uh, our annual tour of the Lower East Side of New York City, where we uh, hit up some historic Jack Kirby locations, including his birthplace, uh, which is a holy site in New York City, as far as I'm concerned. I know Fred has has been on one of those. So, um, yeah, obviously there is some real love for the the actual Modoc source material in this book. <laughs> Fred, if you're watching, we'd love to have you on the show. Oh, yes. I can confirm as well, by the way, I have found that comic. It is Captain America and the Falcon issue eight from 2004. It's not drawn by Bart Sears, but it is drawn by Andrea DeVito, who is also excellent. I'm going to read that whole series. Like, if <laughs> Priest is writing it, I'm reading it. Before we get off the MODOK train, because we have four Marvel Snap players on this stream, um, I just want to call out, out into the void to this, this opponent that I stumbled across a week or so ago. Like, the anonymity of Marvel Snap and like the weird little interactions that you sometimes have with people just like make it even more like pure and wholesome. But somebody with a MODOK avatar playing a MODOK deck, their screen name was not a Richard. And I just think that is like whoever you are, like, <laughs> like you just, I, I have to salute you. <laughs> Any final thoughts on the first episode of Marvel Stand and Book Club focusing on supervillains team up, Modox 11? Just that this was an utter delight uh, all the way through. Yes. I know I, I I had put off reading it until yesterday <laughs> and uh, when I realized yeah. that I need to read was it Was Kirsty busting your chops every day too about that? <laughs> or just mine? Well, no, just yours. Because they threw out, before I logged off yesterday, they threw out, Mike hasn't even read it yet. And I was like, uh, <laughs> neither have I. So, so, and it was, I read it all in one sitting. But you act like I'm, you know, a real nag and a and a skull. No, a no, no, you keep a, you keep the things running. It's and and I'm so grateful <laughs> that I got to read it. I truly enjoyed it. So thank you, Al, for bringing this, and thank you, Kirsty, yeah, for making you, me read it. Yeah, it was a really fun time. I know none of us had read it, including you, Al, and and we were really rolling the dice on it because it could have been, you know, <laughs> turned out to be a terrible series, but we all had fun with it. So great recommendation. Thank you, buddy. Uh, I would also like to say happy birthday to Al. It's his birthday today, 25th birthday. That looks like a gun. It's my <laughs> thank you for joining thank you, thank you very much <laughs> really appreciate it you should be off somewhere drinking many drinks but you're here with us so oh i i literally just got a brand new bottle of nice tequila so i'm gonna be making some nice marks after this al what do you 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 got stuff to plug right why don't you tell everybody where they can find you and the excellent work that you do 
yeah, you can find me. Um, I'm still on Twitter as it collapses around us <laughs> like a disappearing universe. Um, I'm at House to Astonish over there. And the reason for that is that my podcast that I do with my co-host Paul O'Brien is called House to Astonish. It's a long story. And uh, we're over at houseastonish.com. We do news and reviews and kind of mucking around with um, Marvel and DC and independent comics. And we also have a uh, Thunderbolts reread podcast called The Lightning Round, um, which is on the same feed as I to Astonish. If you're a Terry Pratchett fan, I have another podcast called Desert Island Discworld, which is an interview podcast um, with uh, terrific guests talking about their life and work and their Terry Pratchett book that they would take with them to a desert island. Um, if you want to hear me talking about the X-Men, then I recently just finished a, a guest stint co-hosting um, Explain the X-Men while uh, Jay Edidin was on parental leave. And that was terrific fun. You can go and, and hear me talking about not only the X-Men, but also Marvel UK stuff from the early 1990s, which is all completely bonkers. Um, and uh, Kirsty joined me on uh, several episodes of ShelfDust.com's uh, podcast, The War Effort, where we talked about the original uh, Marvel Secret Wars uh, miniseries um, podcast that we did last year. And if you did enjoy that the first time around, then watch the skies because there may be more of that coming very soon. And by there may be, I mean, yes, obviously there is. <laughs> Sorry, keep it secret. <laughs> I think that is it for another episode of Denny Geek Presents Marvel Standing Live. Don't forget to follow Denny Geek US on YouTube and twitch.tv slash TV to catch our upcoming episodes. Kirsty, what are we doing next week? We are taking a look at some of the big Marvel movie crossovers that never happened. Uh, they got lost in development hell, and that's uh, going to include the uh, the Blade and Underworld crossover movie because the lead character of the Underworld movies is a Marvel character, which is, I, I don't think a lot of people know, but yeah, they were intending to put those two together at one point, uh, and a lot more, some really wild stuff from the past that uh, just did not happen. So uh, join us next week for that. It should be fun. I am so excited. Like superhero live action projects that never came together is just like <laughs> very, very, very much in my wheelhouse. So I can't wait. In the coming months, we're going to have some really cool interviews on this show as well. Uh, don't forget, folks, we are also at Marvel Standom on Twitter and Instagram. Drop us a line. Let us know your burning questions. Tell us. Don't ask us. Tell us what you want us to cover in upcoming episodes. And don't forget about our DC show. Check out DC Standing when you can on all major podcast platforms, as well as our paranormal horror and supernatural show, Talking Strange, hosted by the brilliant Aaron Sagers. Now, if you came in late today, you'll be able to watch this entire episode on DennyGeek.com or at our YouTube home, DennyGeek US. And don't forget to check out past episodes there and also wherever you get your podcast. Thank you to Andrew Halley, the best producer in any corner of the multiverse. You were on the ball today, pal. Special shout out to Michael R. He makes the podcast version of this show all it can be. And most of all, thank you all for watching, listening, following, and subscribing. This has been Marvel Standom on the Denny Geek Network. Until next time, remember, folks, 
we stand together.